Hold up. It's playoff time. Man, welcome in to Words with Wallace. Let me just start off by saying shout out to NBC, man. Please don't sue me. Had no permission whatsoever to use that crazy intro, but it's playoff time, and I had I had no choice. The vibes are through the roof. I'm coming at you. It's it's Saturday. Well, Saturday pod, little weekend pod action, April 15th. The playoffs start today. So I had to pay homage to the greatest, the greatest sports intro theme song, whatever you want to call it of all time. Uh, NBA on NBC. It's a damn shame it's no longer the product we received. But anyway, man, I have to say uh, shout out to NBC and shout out to the NBA playoffs, man, because they are upon us. I wanted to come at you guys with the second pod of the week to hit you with my picks for round one, uh, my bracket for the entire NBA playoffs. Um, but before we can get into that, we had an awesome week that we wanted to review of play in action. And so I wanted to kick things off by jumping right into that. So Let's not waste any time. It shouldn't be a super long podcast today. But let's start and, and talk about the playoff, the play-in games, excuse me, that we saw this past week. Let's start off with Atlanta at Miami. The first play-in game of the week, the, what was that, the 7-8 matchup in the Eastern Conference. Um, started off with a pretty gross game overall. I mean, it ended up being relatively close. But um, ultimately, as you guys know, Atlanta came out on top, which was, uh, I was a pleasantly surprised as a Celtics fan here. Um, certainly didn't want to run into Miami in round one. Um, really, this game was a terrible effort from Miami, and it's, it's the Miami team that we've seen um, a lot of this season, and they just weren't able to ultimately pull the game out of their ass. Um, you know, the main story of the game was Kyle Lowry um, really falling out for the Heat, you know, despite his efforts and him putting up like nearly 35 points. Um, the Heat still came up short. They really got nothing out of, out of Jimmy offensively. He had a brutal game, um, 35% shooting from the field. Bam was a, a, basically a zero on offense. Um, and they could not get a rebound to save their life. Atlanta absolutely crushed Miami on the boards all game long. And they finished with a 63-39 to 39 rebound advantage for the Hawks. So uh, 21 boards for Clint Capella, definitely something to note. Um, and the Celtics are playing the Hawks. The Hawks have the seventh seed in the East. Um, that's what that game locked up, and that was an interesting start to the plane. Moving on to probably the most talked about game of the entire week was that game later at night on Tuesday, Wolves at Lakers. Now, this was a 7-8 matchup in the Western Conference, uh, a game that nearly everybody across the board was picking the Lakers because, um, as we talked about on the podcast earlier in the week, the Wolves were super shorthanded, missing Rudy Gobert due to suspension. Uh, of course, they have no Jaden McDaniels. They lost Nas Reed a couple weeks ago. Um, they were down a lot of guys this matchup, and the Lakers were playing at home. They've been playing really good basketball as of late. But it turned out to be comfortably the dumbest game of the week, and it wasn't even close. This game was truly an ugly basketball game. I think the Lakers finished with like 108 points um, after overtime, so it was pretty low scoring. Really, the story of the game was just turnovers and bad fouls on both sides of the ball. Like We know that's kind of the book on Minneapolis, and uh, or on Minnesota, rather, with Cap specifically. But a dumb foul on Anthony Davis sends Mike Conley to the line at the end of regulation and gives him three free throws, which he drilled all of, to his credit, to send the Wolves 
into overtime against the Lakers. Really, just my overarching thoughts is we we obviously know the result of the total play-in tournament, but this game made me feel worse about teams on both sides of the ball. Like, I knew Minnesota was shorthanded, um, and, you know, I didn't expect them to come out on top, but they still played so dumb down the stretch. Um, they really didn't score the last six minutes of regulation, essentially, outside of those Conley free throws, which was an insane scoring drought, showing that they actually should have ended up winning this game. But I was really more disappointed with the Lakers, right? You know, the Grizzlies are beatable. I've been saying that for a while. They're sitting there at the two seed in the West. And, you know, I, I really felt like whatever team came out on top would have a good chance to knock them off. Um, but this was certainly not an inspiring effort from the Lakers. The coaching decisions were really questionable with when they decided to go small. Again, just really bad turnovers for Lakers down the stretch. You know, LeBron being passive at times and not taking it to Carl Anthony Towns when he had him in a few situations on the perimeter. You know, if, if the Lakers play like that, they're not going to beat the Grizzlies in round one. But, alas, they advance and they lock up the seventh seed in the Western Conference. Moving on to the games on, what was it, on Wednesday. Uh, the first game of the night, we had Chicago at Toronto. Don't want to spend a ton of time on this because, spoiler alert, both these teams did not end up making the tournament. But, uh, really, it was an insane blown lead from Toronto that was kind of the story of the game. You know, I again, Toronto is not, you know, flooded with talent, but they certainly fell short of their expectations on the season. I have to wonder if the rumors of Nick Nurse finding a new job are going to start coming out pretty soon if he doesn't really want to be a part of you know, a, a rebuild per se. Like, I don't know what direction they're going to go. I'm not saying the Raptors are going to fire him outright. It would probably be one of those mutually um, agreed upon uh, parting of ways situation for Nick Nurse if he does decide to move on uh, because he is a really good coach and I don't think Toronto would get rid of him outright. But it does feel like something needs to change there and they need to either redirect if they're going to make a splash play and, and make a move to become more competitive and, and become a top six seed in the East or if they want to go the other direction and just kind of rebuild around St Scotty Barnes and see what you can get for a guy like Siakam on the trade market. So I think the direction of Toronto is a relatively interesting subplot of all this. But again, back to the game at hand. They blew a massive lead, and it really came down to their free throw shooting. Now, the game was at home for the Raptors in Toronto. Um, and if you guys missed it, the Raptors ended up shooting 18 of 36 from the free throw line, which is absolutely pathetic. They aren't a bad free throw shooting team normally. Um, a lot of people might say it's due to the efforts of DR DeRozan. <laughs> DeMar DeRozan's daughter um, was actually there at the game, of course, decked out in Bulls gear. Um, and they showed her on the screen a few times. The ESPN cameras kind of picked her up. Um, and she was absolutely screaming at the top of her lungs um, during each and every Raptors free throw, which was, again, notable because it was in Toronto. So you could actually hear her on the broadcast virtually every time. And, you know, of course, ESPN kind of leaned into it a bit, and they probably overcovered it a bit, um, and they kept showing her on the screen. But it was genuinely one of the coolest sports storylines that I'd seen in a while. Um, nobody really likes Raptors fans, so, you know, I don't really feel bad for them at all. I think it's awesome that she went into a hostile environment and screamed her ass off, and it worked for the most part. So um, I thought that was a, a cool storyline. Uh, it's unfortunate the Bulls didn't end up making it in because I'm sure we would have seen a lot more coverage of, of DeMar's daughter throughout the playoffs. But moving on to the next game later that night, uh, Oklahoma City at New Orleans. The story of this game was just really an overarching disappointment in, in the lack of, of Zion Williamson being out there, right? I mean, it was a great game on both sides of the ball. It came down to the wire. It could have gone either way. And you had a lot of fun matchups, right? I mean, you had some really incredible offense from Josh Giddy, 
Um, he had, I think he had a 30-point near triple-double if he didn't get a triple-double that game, um, as well as SGA despite being kind of bottled up in the first half, coming on strong down the stretch. Brandon Ingram playing solid all around. And on the defensive side of the ball, you had, you know, Lou Dort and Herb Jones, two of the best, the league's best perimeter defenders going at it and taking on the opposing team's best player. So it was a really fun game. Ultimately, Oklahoma City was able to pull it out. But, you know, you can't help but feel for the Pelicans a little bit, right? I mean, you know, on the podcast a couple weeks ago, I, I posed a question and asked if the Pelicans were having a moment. It turns out they, they certainly were not having a moment. Um, you know, as we all know, Zion Williamson did not end up returning this season. Um, and it's all because of a hamstring injury, man, a hamstring injury that he suffered, you know, months ago. Like, you don't, obviously, there's there's, you know, certain degrees of each injury along the way. I'm sure he had a, a worse hamstring sprain for, for what it's worth. But, you know, at, at some point you need to take the training wheels off him, like I was saying, and, you know, bring him back. Um, ultimately, we found out through um, Zion's uh, appearance in the press that it was actually his decision, that he felt like even though he might be ready to go physically, that, you know, mentally he wasn't comfortable with managing the injury and getting back on the court. So, you know, for whatever reason, it's it's a huge disappointment. And I think, you know, the frustrations, if they haven't started boiling up already for the teammates of Zion Williamson, I'm sure that they're front and center now because that is not a team that should be missing the playoffs. They're a very talented team. Uh, you know, they ended up in the same exact spot that they were last year. They ended up in the nine seed. They had to win two playing games like they were able to accomplish last season. And if Zion was out there, I think not only would they have had a good chance of, you know, winning the play-in tournament, they probably should have won those games, but they also, you know, could give Denver a run for its money if they're at full health. So disappointing end to the, to the season. We'll talk more about the Pelicans in a couple weeks for the offseason, but felt like that was worth noting. Moving on to the games last night, the final spot up for grabs in each conference, and it came down to, at first in the Eastern Conference, the Bulls at the Heat. Um, now, the Heat played absolutely awful, like I mentioned before, in their first game against the Hawks, but, you know, Miami, they're, you know, extremely inconsistent, and we got a much better version of the Heat, you know, yesterday. And so... Jimmy Butler had a, a, a truly great game. You know, he was ultimately a better shot maker and a better shot creator than either Zach Levine or DeMar DeRozan. Um, you know, it was interesting to see Kyle Lowry, who, you know, almost saved the day for them in the previous matchup. He actually got banged up. Um, and I don't mean to make light of an injury situation by any means. You know, we hope that Kyle Lowry gets back on the court quickly. But essentially, <laughs> it was pretty well documented on the broadcast that he just checked himself out of the game with what appeared to be a knee, a knee injury. And he just kind of sat at the end of the bench, like sit, sat on the ground in front of his own bench. And he looked really sad, rightfully so. I'm sure he wanted to be out there with his guys. But at like no point that I saw and I watched the entire game, did he ever like go back to the locker room <laughs> or get like work done? He just like increasingly looked more sad and then eventually just like put on a warm up jacket and was just like chilling, you know, sitting real somber in front of the bench the entire time. So I just don't know if there was like a mutual understanding that he just wasn't going to be able to go. Like, hopefully it's not something too serious, but I just felt like it was a rare situation where like he doesn't get any type of medical examination from the step from the training staff to see if he's able to go or if he should get on the bike and warm up. Like I have no idea. So again, hopefully he's all right. Maybe when you're in the league for, you know, 15, almost 20 years, like Lowry's been, um, you just kind of get the, you know, the green light and, and you get to kind of manage your own injury. But I thought it was kind of weird that Lowry just, you know, just sat there and never got any work done. Maybe I'm a little messed up for thinking it was kind of a, a funny visual. But whatever, man, Miami ended up pulling this one out. 
Um, you know, they were still struggled at points. Not as They certainly didn't struggle on the glass as bad as they did against Atlanta. But there were still moments in the game where, like, you know, Andre Drummond actually came in off the bench for the Bulls and was pretty massive for the Heat. Or, excuse me, pretty massive for the Bulls in, you know, consistently grabbing offensive rebounds. Just his size and presence. Um, Stan Van Gundy on the broadcast is just hyping him up like, this is the best rebounder of the last decade in the NBA. I'm like, Drummond, <laughs> Drummond, uh, the game has kind of evolved past Andre Drummond a little bit. And he's, he's obviously just a backup at this stage. But I do think that there should be a real concern for the Heat when you're dealing with a lot of size. I mean, we know that Miami's a small team. You know, Bam, well, albeit a great defender, he's only six foot nine. So, um, and they really have no other significant height in their starting lineup or even off their bench at this point. Besides, occasionally they'll play Cody Zeller. Um, and Kevin Love, you know, doesn't seem to get as much burn as he should be getting for their rebounding struggles. So uh, I think that's notable because they're matching up with Milwaukee next round. Uh, and we'll see how their lack of size comes into effect in that series. But uh, the Bulls, you know, don't end up playing their best basketball. The Heat pull it out as we kind of expected. And we're going to get Miami and Milwaukee uh, in round one of the playoffs. Last game, Oklahoma City at Minnesota. Out of the six playing games, this one was far and away the worst game. It was the least competitive game, and it was really just a tough matchup for Oklahoma City. Minnesota ended up essentially blowing them out, and it was really just due to a lack of size above all else. We've been saying it all year. I mentioned it when we talked about Mark Dagnall as coach of the year. His ability to maximize the lack of size on that roster. Obviously, that team was missing Chet all year long. You know, Jalen Williams is like a 6'10 center, but really plays as, you know, functionally, you know, plays like more of a power forward. You know, when you're playing a team in Minnesota that, you know, now has Rudy Gobert back and has two centers in their starting lineup, that's going to be a tough game. It was just, you know, but also credit to the Timberwolves for playing really well on the defensive end of the court. They seemed to bottle up Shea pretty well. They really made him work for his baskets, and the only time Shea got easy ones was, you know, when he got to the line, and even then he was taking a beating. Uh, got an elbow to the face from Rudy Gobert that I'm sure pissed everybody off because Rudy's far and away the most unlikable player in the league, and injuring a guy like Shea in the face is is never a great visual. But, you know, if you're a Timberwolves fan, you're happy with what you saw. You know, I think it was a really good game from Carl Towns. It was awesome to see him actually attack the basket for once and recognize that his, you know, nobody on the on the Thunder could really stack up with him physically, and he wasn't just settling for the three ball. He was attacking the hoop. Anthony Edwards is alive. He played awful in the Lakers game. Um, he looked like a glorified role player that was having a tough night against the Lakers, and he came back and had, you know, nearly a triple-double last night, last night against the Thunder. So uh, Minnesota advances. They're matching up with Denver at the 1-8 matchup in the Western Conference, and we will talk about that in a second. Before we get on to the playoff matchups in round one, I wanted to give my opinion on the play-in tournament, right? It's been around for three years, and I think a lot of people, including myself, were really critical of the play-in tournament when the league announced its plan to launch this play-in tournament. Um, you know, initially, my fears and the fears of many others is that, above all else, it devalued the regular season, right? When you have, you know, the play-in tournament, you have 10 teams in each conference with an opportunity to make the playoffs. Well, six teams in each conference that do make the playoffs and four additional four teams in each conference with the chance of making it. So, essentially, there's only 10 teams eliminated entirely from the playoffs, right? And I think that that's kind of lame, right? It's almost like you're getting a participation trophy, um, and it's also an opportunity for, you know, bad teams to have a chance to make it. Like, how often um, had we seen 10 seeds and 9 seeds in each conference be, you know, pretty uncompetitive all altogether. And those teams would have a chance to, um, you know, make the playoffs despite almost certainly having an under 500 record. So, 
that was kind of my fear going in. I was against it. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I didn't see why the league was trying to announce this tournament and make this a plan moving forward. Now, it's been three years of playing tournaments, as we've talked about before. And so we have this data that I wanted to take a closer look back on the playing tournaments the past couple of years and evaluate, you know, what teams advanced, what seed they were, how close were the games, so on and so forth. That way we could have a better picture uh, before we evaluate, you know, this play-in tournament after three years. So in 2021, uh, four out of those six play-in games were pretty close and competitive. Um, I would say I would determine a close game by being decided by eight points or less. That's kind of how I looked at it. Again, four out of the six in 2021 were close games. Again, four out of the six were close last year in 2022. And this year, as we talked about, I would say Five out of the six were close. Really, every single one was a competitive game besides the Minnesota and Thunder game that we saw last night. So keeping all this in mind, you know, what do I think of the play-in tournament? What are my thoughts as a whole? I think, and again, as somebody who was critical of this idea at first, after three years, I can say that this is actually a good product, and I think it's good for the NBA. I think the main reason for that, and something I wasn't really accounting for when they initially announced this idea, is that... The league is better. The average team is better. The average player is better um, than ever before, right? If you look at the average, you know, guys 7 through 10 on an NBA roster now and compare it to 10 years ago, 15 years ago, even 5 years ago, there's so much more talent in this league. You know, the pipeline, whether it's from overseas and the globalization of the game, whether it's, you know, players just getting involved in extremely competitive setting and narrowing in on their skills from a younger age, like the average NBA player is just going to keep getting better. It's, it's just scientific at this point. And it, it, there's a lot of different stats that kind of illustrate that. And maybe this stat isn't the best one that represents it. But I think it's always fun to look at the scoring in the league and how many players have scored 20 points per game or more. Um, I'm going to give you guys a second. Take a guess. How many players in the NBA this season do you think scored 20 points per game or more? I'll give you a sec. All right. It is 44 players. 44 players this season scored 20 points per game or more. And I know, you know, the pace is higher and offense is more efficient, efficient than ever. And, you know, scoring and statistics across the board are, are basically increasing, um, you know, on a league-wide basis. And, and maybe it's not just due to the talent, but the talent is definitely a part of that. And, you know, for me, I was thinking, man, this is just opening the door for bad teams to have a chance to get in and compete that are below 500. But the reality of the situation is that there were really only four bad teams all year long. Like even the teams at the bottom of the standing, like Orlando and, um, you know, Utah, for example, like besides those bottom four, all those teams, you know, you could see the magic in a play-in game and they would still deliver an entertaining product. You could take Portland if they were trying and at full strength and put them in a play-in game and it would be fun to watch. Like there's just so much talent in this league and there's only a handful of teams that are actually set out to lose before each and every season that as long as those teams don't make it into the play-in tournament, which they won't, I think you're going to be getting a good product. Now, I understand that this was a good year, especially in the Western Conference with how tight-knit it was and, and having a team like as talented as Dallas miss the cut. Like, that's just kind of insane to think about. But when you look at it, sure, there's going to be years where a team that's like, you know, has like 30-something wins sneaks in as a 10 seed and they're going to have to play. But if that happens, they're just going to get weeded out. They're going to get crushed in the first game of the play-in tournament, and it's really not going to be a big deal. It's extremely unlikely that that team is going to win two games in a row to make it into the championship. 
Uh, not not the championship, excuse me, the playoffs. I think the best example of that is Charlotte in 2021. Uh, they somehow made it in. They were a, a god-awful team. I guess they just happened to be the 10 seed in the Eastern Conference at that point. Uh, and they played in round one of the play-in, and they lost by 30. And that was the season, right? That was, uh, that was probably the very first play-in tournament game. So I guess they didn't get off to a great start. But... Anyways, it's just, you know, I think that there's other reasons for it being positive, too. You know, it adds a fun week of action before the playoffs, and it gives the top six seeds in each conference a well-deserved period of rest. And, you know, no matter what I think of it, and no matter what anybody else thinks of it, we all might as well get used to it because it's not going anywhere. It delivers six primetime games on national TV networks, and it's delivering a good product. And now that everyone's gotten a taste of that TV money and that entertainment and that drama and those storylines... It's not going to go anywhere. So I think overall we should be happy that we got another good year of the play-in tournament. I think we're going to continue to get uh, a solid play-in product moving forward. And when the league expands to a couple more teams, I think it'll be make even more sense that there are you know ten teams with a chance to make the playoffs each and every year. And now. The moment we've all been waiting for. Let's talk about the playoffs, right? Let's talk about the 2023 NBA playoffs and the matchups that we have in round one, right? I'm just going to focus on each and every round one matchup. I'm not going to go beyond that. But at the very end, I will give my you know entire bracket picks, my picks to wing, win the entire thing, just because I want to get that on record before the playoffs start here. But let's get things started with the Eastern Conference and Bucks versus Heat. Now, this, this matchup, I think, is a little bit more fun than people realize because this team actually has some significant recent history. Um, this feels like forever ago, but in 2020, these teams matched up. And again, this was the bubble year. They matched up in round two, Bucks versus Heat, and the Bucks actually lost. They lost to the Heat in five games, and it was pretty decisive. As many of you remember, this was the year where the, the Heat actually went on to lose in the finals to the Lakers in the bubble. And I think Milwaukee has grown a lot since then, clearly. Uh, but it's notable. They're really you know one of the few teams to actually knock off the Bucks the last couple of years. And then in 2021, the Bucks actually had a chance to get their revenge, and they did. They matched up with the Heat in round one, and they swept them. And so this season, um, I, I did, you know, kind of go through and, and provide the, you know, regular season matchup and, uh, you know, the records that these teams have against each other during this past regular season, even though I don't think that that's always the best barometer to evaluate a matchup, especially in this year's regular season where so many notable stars missed games. I think it can be misleading. Like, does it really matter if the, if the Bucks have a losing record against the Heat and Giannis didn't play in any of those games? Like, you know, obviously that's not the case, but... Um, just something to keep in mind with how many stars are resting that to maybe take the in-season matchup record uh, with a grain of salt. But for what it's worth, they are, you know, two and two against each other this season. But I just think what, what with what we've seen from the Miami Heat this season, they've been extremely inconsistent. When you catch them on the right night, yeah, sure, that they're gritty enough and they're battle-tested enough and they're well-coached enough to beat anybody. But I think the lack of size for Miami is a real concern. You know, if Clint Capella was able to grab gobble up 21 rebounds uh, against them. And then, you know, Andre Drummond was able to have a really crazy run off the bench for the Bulls last game. Uh, what is it going to look like when they're dealing with the size and the athleticism of Giannis and then also Brooke Lopez in the front court? I think it's a really tough matchup for Miami. Like, you know, I mean, the Bucks might be the best team in basketball. So uh, not much more to say on that. I have the Bucks winning in five games. Moving on to my team, the Boston Celtics. Um, again, I could not be more excited that they got Atlanta in round one. Um, they've been able to take advantage of Atlanta all season. They're 3-0 and against the Hawks this season. 
I just think the Celtics have a lot of different guards and a lot of different talented defenders to to throw at Trey at Trey Young. If Rob Williams is healthy, having him you know be able to defend against their incredible lob threat offense with Clint Capella and John Collins running to the hoop, um, I just think it's a really good matchup for the Celtics. And they've been you know they actually closed the year pretty strong, and I think that they should be able to sweep this team. And I think that's what they're going to do. I have the Celtics winning in four against the Hawks. Moving on to Sixers versus Nets. You know, sneaky, I think the Nets might be the worst team in the playoffs, period, which I think has flown really under the radar. Like, they're just not talked about very much. And it's it's really just because, you know, they're 11 and 13 since the All-Star break, right? They're a totally different team since they rebuilt their team at the trade deadline, obviously moving away from Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. You know, they brought back Mikel Bridges, who's been incredible for them on both sides of the court. He's been averaging like 27 points a game for the Nets, which is pretty incredible. I just don't think that the Nets are truly a playoff team as they're currently constructed. Like, their record is what their record is, you know, because they had Kevin Durant on a a crazy efficiency before the trade deadline. Um, It didn't stop Spencer Dinwiddie from talking, though. If you guys missed that, he got into some, you know, Twitter online beef with Kyle Kuzma of the Wizards. So, you know, (laughs) always great when you get some uh, publicized beef between two extremely mid-NBA players. But, you know... The Nets use Spencer Dinwiddie as their secondary playmaker alongside Mikal Bridges, which I just think is a massive red flag. Like, if he's the second best creator on your team, you're in some deep shit. Like, I, again, and this is not anything against Mikal Bridges because I think he's been awesome and um, he's kind of filled the void of a team that you would think is missing a star player. It seems like they have one in Bridges. And I do think that Nick Claxton can hold his own against Embiid better than most. He's um, somebody I didn't talk about when we talked about, you know, first and second team all defense, but I think Claxton, you know, could be on that list for how talented he was this season and how good he is just running the floor, uh, protecting the rim as well. And, you know, being a better perimeter defender than people realize. I don't know if he's going to be strong enough to hold up with against Embiid all, all series long. I think, again, this should be a pretty easy series for the Sixers one where Embiid still finds a way to get his buckets and the Sixers find a way to adapt. Um, and I think that the Sixers end up winning in four games. I don't think it's going to be close. Moving on to probably definitely the most fun uh, series in the Eastern Conference, uh, Cavs versus the Knicks. This is the 4-5 matchup. Um, This is one that I think is going to be pretty close. The Knicks are actually 3-1 against the Cavs this season, so they have that advantage despite being the lower seed. But the Knicks are kind of in a tough spot. You know, Julius Randle, their best or second best player, depending on how you look at it, is certainly not healthy. He's coming off an ankle injury. Um, They're they're expecting him to play later today. They said he's going to test it out in warm-ups. Um, and we'll see, and hopefully he'll be able to be out there, but it, it sounds like even if he does play, he's not going to be at 100%. And I just think that I have a lot of faith in Cleveland. Um, I've been high on them all year. They have the top-rated defense in the NBA. They have somebody that's been getting a lot of defensive player of the year buzz lately in Evan Mobley. Um, and I think that the Mobley-Randall matchup is one that is actually going to be you know, won by Evan Mobley, especially with Randall not being at full health. And I just think that the Cavs have better playmaking at the guard position when you take into account that they have both you know, Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell. Um, I think the Knicks have been a good story this year. They've had some really fun stretches, but they're just not super healthy uh, at the you know the time where you need them to be. And so I think the Cavs are going to win in six. Moving on to the Western Conference, we have the one versus eight seed. We have the Denver Nuggets versus the Minnesota Timberwolves. Now, if you watched the uh, the Minnesota Oklahoma City Thunder game last night, you know that Minnesota fans were feeling themselves quite a bit. You know as they do. Uh, there were We Want Denver chants, uh, you know, circling through the Target Center in Minneapolis last night. And I just wanted to say, I think that that's a super lame move, right? 
Like, Denver's been on its couch. Denver has been on its couch for basically a month. Like, they haven't had to try for shit because they've had the one seed locked up in the Western Conference where Minnesota has had to grind tooth and nail in the play-in tournament to eke out an eight seed to have a chance to lose to Denver in the first round. Like, you know, it'd be one thing if, you know, the series were going on simultaneously and, you know, maybe Denver had a game seven scheduled and, and they and Minnesota had beef with Denver. Um, and so they, they get ahead in their series and they start chanting that they want Denver. Well, you're getting Denver. You don't have a choice. Like, like Denver's been on his couch just wondering what team they're going to run up against in the first round and, and probably run through. I think that this is going to be an awful matchup for the Timberwolves, and I think the Nuggets are going to, you know, really kick their ass. Like, it'd be one thing if the Wolves were at full strength, but but they're not, man. Like, they're missing Jaden McDaniels. That's the thing that, again, was lost in the in the Rudy Gobert punch to Kyle Anderson, um, you know, that we obviously talked about last podcast. Like, Gobert's back. Gobert's fine. Like, you know, that beef is squashed. But what you can't fix is Jaden McDaniels' hand, their best perimeter defender, uh, a starter for them all season, uh, a guy that could do a lot of work on both guarding Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr., depending on how they want to approach that matchup. Uh, they're not going to have him the entire series and the rest of the way here, which is a massive loss. And they're also losing Nas Reed, who, again, when you're playing a team like Denver, you know, having an extra body and, and having somebody that can actually make uh, Jokic work a little bit, uh, defensively, like Nas Reed, like if you wanted to have a weird lineup of Nas Reed and Carl Towns out there and make Jokic guard one of those two guys, I think that would put a lot of stress on Jokic, but they don't have Nas Reed either. So I think it's a really terrible matchup for the Wolves. And, you know, maybe if you're a casual fan, you might be thinking, well, hey, Gobert's a great defender and a former defensive player of the year. Like, you know, maybe he's somebody that could help slow down Jokic. That's not that's not how Gobert rolls. He's not going to take somebody out of the game. He's just going to protect the rim. He's actually a pretty mediocre or below average perimeter defender. And the way Jokic attacks a, a, a defense in general, like it takes a complete unit. It takes a well-oiled machine to slow down his reads and how he dissects a defense. And the Wolves that are you know coached kind of questionably and playing shorthanded, uh, I think it's going to be a really tough for them to slow down Jokic, especially when they're missing two guys that were really important to their team all, all year. And above all else, like Gobert being out there is going to make Jokic's life way easier because he gets to guard Gobert on defense. So he doesn't have to do shit. Gobert is so terrible offensively. It's not even funny. He's not even a good lob threat. The guy has wet fish for hands. Jokic is going to be able to stand there in the lane like a scarecrow when Gobert's in the game, and he's not going to have to work at all on defense. At least if you have Nas Reed and you put him out there with Cat, or you 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 know if you take Gobert out of the game and and make Jokic guard Cat, he's going to have to work a little bit, which is probably the best way to slow Jokic down on offense is by making him work on defense. The Wolves aren't going to be in a situation where they're going to have to make Jokic work at all. I think the Nuggets win in four. So congrats, congrats, Timberwolves fans. You wanted Denver. You're going to get them, and I think you're going to get them in four games. Um, moving on to Grizzlies versus Lakers. This is a really fun series. This is the 2-7 in the West. The Lakers are actually 2-1 and one versus the Grizzlies this season. And like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know, again, I, I think Memphis is a really beatable two-seed. I think they've obviously had their struggles both on and off the court this season. But, you know, for what it's worth, they're a good team that plays with a lot of energy, right? Despite how bad the Lakers looked in that game against Minnesota, I'm still taking the Lakers to beat the Grizzlies. I think it's a tough matchup for Memphis, um, especially given their lack of front court depth. They don't have Steven Adams the rest of the season. That came out a couple weeks ago. They haven't had Brandon Clark for a while, but they're not getting him back either. You know, 
at the big man position, they're pretty thin. You know, they have Aldama coming off the bench behind Jaron Jackson Jr. They usually start Tillman, kind of depending on the matchup. But I just think that, you know, the Lakers' ability to attack the basket, and LeBron especially, they're going to be a really good team that if and when Jaron Jackson Jr. gets in foul trouble, which will happen, mark my words, they're going to have guys that, like LeBron and Anthony Davis to really attack the rim, go at his chest, and, you know, really make that foul problem front and center. They're going to make put him in tough situations where he's either going to have to let them score or he's going to have to pick up another foul and they're going to have to learn how to play without him. I think that... Despite how stupid the Lakers can be at times, I do think they'll drop a couple games to Memphis just by being dumb and an and inability to stop John the perimeter, which no team can really do. I think the Lakers are going to end up winning this series. I, I'm going to take the Lakers in six. It is going to be interesting to see how they choose to defend John. I wonder if they get weird and, and try to put Vanderbilt on him just because um, at least, I don't know. Like, I don't know if he has the foot speed to stay in front of John. Nobody really does, but I don't know what their better option would be. So I think that could be a fun matchup if they put that big of a body on Ja. See if they make him beat him from the outside a little bit. But I have the Lakers beating the Grizzlies in six, as I mentioned. Now, this is probably the most fun series in the entire first round. I think it'll be the most entertaining to watch. Kings versus Warriors, right? The Kings are going to have the best home crowd in the entire playoffs, at least in round one anyway. Um... Because they are going through, what, it was a 14-year playoff drought? I think it might even be more than that, to be honest. Maybe maybe it was more than that. I, it, I feel like it had to have been longer, but whatever. They had the longest active playoff drought in, in all of American pro sports before this year. They broke that streak, and they did it in a big way by landing the three-seed in the Western Conference. And who do they get waiting for them but the defending champs in Golden State, their team right down the road, this should be a lot of fun. This should be, you know, I, I wonder what the over-under is going to be set in these games uh, but the Warriors are 3-1 and one versus the Kings this season. Uh, obviously, they are getting Andrew Wiggins back. We literally haven't seen it yet. We're going to be seeing that later today for the first time. His return, they expect to bring him off the bench and, and kind of ease his way back in for, for what it's worth. How, however you do that in a must-win playoff series, I don't know. Um, but I just, I, it stinks because I like the Kings, but I've been kind of doubting them this whole time. I said I was likely going to pick against them in, in round one, and I am. I'm, I'm taking the Warriors to win in six. It's just really interesting that, you know, the Warriors' road struggles this season have been well-documented. They're 11-30 and 30 on the road, and they're going to be playing against, like I said, the most active and lively home playoff crowd. But for what it's worth, you know, it's, it's right down the road. You know, the, the travel, if it's a traveling issue for the Warriors, um, and, and, they, and they just really can't stand traveling these days, well, you know, they're only going like an hour away. So... I think that the Warriors will find a way to win one out of the first two games in Sacramento, and that'll basically decide the series right there. I have the Warriors winning in six and closing it out on their home court. Moving on to the final matchup of round one, Suns versus Clippers. Now, you know, as we talked about in, in the previous podcast, or maybe it was the podcast before or whatever, uh, you know, the five seed is a really tough spot to be in the Western Conference because you get matched up with Phoenix in round one. That's basically been decided for a while. And if you win that series, you're most likely playing Denver in round two. And the Clippers, who have the worst luck out of virtually any franchise, of course, they ended up at the five seed, right? It was projected that they'd end up there. You know, they made the decision to not, you know, basically tank or jockey or whatever you want to call it to reduce their seed because... If they did try to intentionally lose one of their games, their final games of the regular season, it's likely they would have ended up in the play-in. I probably still would have taken my chances in the play-in over, um, you know, playing Phoenix in round one. But the Clippers actually did miss 
you know, they were in the play-in tournament last year and they they didn't make it in. Um, so, so as somebody that lost two consecutive play-in games last year, I understand why they played it safe and they're like, okay, we'll take who we get in round one. Well, they get Phoenix. They get Phoenix that, again, is undefeated with Kevin Durant. Uh, Phoenix has home court advantage. I think that the Clippers, for what it's worth, if they were at full health, they could match up against Phoenix as good as, honestly, any team in the league with how many great wing defenders they have. Um, but the unfortunate thing is that it doesn't it doesn't look like we're going to see uh, Paul George again. At least we're not going to see him in round one, and I don't think they get to round two without him. Um, you know, Tyron Lue yesterday said that they're going to play it safe, and they're not bringing him back unless he's 100% healthy and there's no chance of re-injury, um, which is fair, I guess. But it's just really tough because are you ever going to get a perfect health situation? Are you ever going to get a perfect season where Kawhi and Paul George at least are both at full strength in the playoffs? Like, probably not, man. Like, you've had such shitty luck. I, I understand you don't want to jeopardize a guy's health and career, you know, to have some success in, in maybe one playoff series, but I just don't know if the Clippers get back to this point with how often that they're banged up. So um, it's going to be really tough for them to beat the Suns, especially without Paul George. I just think that, you know, Phoenix is just too talented, especially on the offensive side of the court, and I have the Suns winning in five games. So that covers round one, right? Um, I think we're in for a decently exciting round one, but when it gets to round two, we have, you know, again, if things go as I expect, and even if, if I get one of these matchups wrong, I think we're going to get really, really awesome round two matchups across the board that could be, you know, essentially conference finals matchups with the level of talent that we're working with. And again, I'm not going to go into each matchup specifically, but what I am going to do is just quickly go over my picks just to get this on record uh, before the playoffs start. So, in round two, um, assuming everything goes as planned, I have the Bucks over the Cavs, I have the Celtics over the 76ers, and I have, in the Western Conference, the Nuggets over the Suns, and I have the Warriors over the Lakers. So, in the Conference Finals, the final four teams that I have are Celtics, Bucks, and Nuggets, Warriors, and I have the Celtics over the Bucks. I've been saying it all year, I think that that matchup in the Eastern Conference Finals is going to determine the eventual champion. Uh, and I feel good about my C's. So we'll talk about that more as the playoffs progress, but I'm picking my C's to win against the Bucks, and I'm taking the Nuggets over the Warriors. I think that it's a totally different matchup than what we saw with Nuggets-Warriors last season. Um, I think Jokic is really going to be a, a difficult person to stop for the Warriors with their lack of size and um, you know how they run their offense, especially now that Denver has Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray alongside of Jokic. And in the finals, I'm taking my Boston Celtics. I'm taking my Boston Celtics over the Denver Nuggets to win the whole thing. I'm excited about it. If you couldn't tell, that's why I'm wearing my green today. Um, obviously, the Celtics have a long road ahead before they can hoist that trophy. They're going to need to stay healthy, but I think they have as good of a chance as any. I think the, the addition of Malcolm Brogdon in the offseason, and I think how Derek White has played this season compared to what we got from him last season, uh, cannot be overstated. And I think that the Celtics are the best team in basketball when they're, when they're firing in all cylinders. So... Final, again, is Celtics over Nuggets. I will post my bracket at some point on the social media channels for the podcast so you guys can uh, comment and we can discuss there as well. But let me know what you think, man. Let me know what you think of the play-in tournament after three years. Let me know what you think of my uh, diagnosis or, or fo forecast, if you will, for the round one playoff series. And let me know what you think of my final playoff bracket. So... With that, man, I don't know exactly when I'll be coming back to you guys this week. We'll see if, if the games today and tomorrow and maybe on Monday are worth talking about to do it, to do my own podcast either on Monday or Tuesday of this week. That's likely what I'm targeting, but I will keep you guys posted on that. 
before I hit this button and get up out of here, I encourage you guys to, of course, uh, let me know what you think on all that. Follow at Words with Wallace on everything. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, YouTube, Facebook, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow the show, share the show, tell a friend, and I will hit this button, get up out of here, and talk to you guys next week. Mm -hmm.